The root of the problem in the sustainability crisis is a loss of the sacred. Through conversations with scientists, theologians, scholars, thought leaders, and friends of the Spirituality and Sustainability Global Network, Make It Sacred explores the intersectionality of spirituality and sustainability and why this intersection is critical at our existential societal tipping point. Without spiritual grounding, we won't have a commitment or political will to create hope for sustainability. Co-creation always starts with a conversation. And what are we co-creating? A spiritually grounded passion that comes from a sacred understanding of the earth. Hi, my name is Maddie, and I'll be your host as we start these conversations together. everyone. Thank you for tuning in for this month's episode of Make It Sacred. Today, we have the pleasure of listening to a conversation with Reverend Dr. Gregory Simpson. He is a pastor, a scientist, an educator, and a very wise man. He is also a friend of the Spirituality and Sustainability Global Network and a former board member. In this conversation, we talk about environmental justice, activism, historical oppression, spirituality, and how you can't talk about one of these things without talking about the others. This interview is actually from our archives a few years ago when we used to just send out a newsletter and we didn't have a podcast. So I wanted to bring you this conversation so you can still hear his wisdom and learn from him. You'll hear us reference a panel a few times during the interview. And this is a panel that Gregory led two years ago on environmental justice and racism. So if you hear us talking about that, like it's a current event, that's why it was two years ago. But what he shares with us today is still very relevant and worth listening to. Thank you for supporting us with your ears. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can also donate to the SSGN to support further educational initiatives like this one. I'll put the link in the show notes, but the URL is spirituality-sustainability, and you can click the donate button in the top right-hand corner of our website. You can also support the show by leaving us a review in Spotify or iTunes. It just helps us to become more visible and to spread the words that we're sharing on this podcast to other people. You can look for these shows on the last Friday of every month. So thank you for tuning in today, and let's get into the interview. I like to start these with talking about what the person's origins are, what your upbringing was like, where was it, and how those things informed your passion for the work you do now. So I was actually born in Glasgow, Scotland. No way. I lived there for a while. Really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You are quite the, quite the person, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, finish telling me, then I'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> so, yeah, I was born in Glasgow, Scotland. My parents studied, studied at the University of Edinburgh. Um, Dad did electrical engineering. My mom did food technology. And when I was about, I don't know, two, two, two and a half or so, my brother, who was younger than me, a year younger than me, both and family moved back to Jamaica. And so most of my youth, my, my infant years were, I grew up in Jamaica. Then at about age six, we left Jamaica and came to Minnesota. 
so we lived in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My dad was studying hospital engineering there and did a master's degree there. So spent a few years there, then moved back to Jamaica. Did finished all my schooling, a doctorate uh, in organic chemistry. Then worked for I don't know four years. Left and then left there and came to the U.S. Moved to Massachusetts, where worked as a postdoc research fellow for uh, at UMass Medical School. Worked there for a few years and then moved to moved to New York City, and that's where I've been ever since. Since about two thousand and ten, I've been here. So most of my adolescent years, or well, all of my adolescent years, I grew up in Jamaica. So that oriented me specifically towards issues of environment. After my PhD, I started working in the Ministry of Agriculture as a food safety laboratory manager. I managed a program, um, a national program. And that was really when I started focusing on issues of environment because we were required to do all the food safety testing in compliance with the World Trade Organization sanitary and phytosanitary standards. And that opened my eyes to what environmental contaminants could look like from PCBs to heavy metals to industrial waste contamination in the soil, air quality to pesticides and antibiotic residues in milk and eggs. I mean, I just, that was when I really started understanding the significance of environmental issues. But growing up in Jamaica, I mean, it's um, fully, it's, you know, 99% people of color. So you don't really, I didn't really have to wrestle with issues of race. It was just issues of environment. When I came to the U.S., then I got a different sense and flavor of what the issue of race meant in these issues as it relates to environment, as it relates to ecology, as it relates to, I guess the best way to put it is just dealing with issues systemically. And so by the time I got to seminary, I was pretty much focused on two things. One, the issues of environment, and the other was issues of education. And both of them kind of go hand in hand as I saw it, because education was also a systemic issue that I had to wrestle with when I came here. Why did you decide to shift in that passion and furthering that passion from chemistry to seminary school and becoming a pastor? There are a couple of reasons why. The first reason is I remember when I started moving along the research line in terms of the postdoc that I did at UMass Medical School, I started to get really comfortable. I guess the word that I would use is, you know, after a while you do so, do things so, so often that you become very competent at it. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find really a challenge. I realized after that postdoc that most of the science, if not all of the science, any problem that was thrown at me, 
I could somehow figure it out. I could figure out why or how the things were happening. I mean, it was between the experiments, the research, the contacts in, in, the, in the science area, the particular field. I could pretty much figure out what was going on and how it was happening. What started to bother me late in my postdoc was why things were happening. My focus at that time was on a condition or disease called preeclampsia, that's pregnancy-induced hypertension. And I had to study the physiology of pregnancy. And I just got, I was just blown away. I just, I, 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 you know, all my academic life and research life, I'd focused on plant science, plant chemistry. So when I got to UMass Medical School, that was really the first time I'd engaged in physiology and anatomy and things like that. And I just was blown away when I started to understand all of the genes that are involved in regulating the pregnancy process. I mean, it just blew my mind out of, the wor out of this world. But over time, started to learn how the genes behaved and how and why they were doing what they were doing and the proteins. And so after a while, I could figure out how the things were happening, but that never answered the question of why. And that question of why couldn't be answered in a lab. It had to be answered somewhere else. And that's when I started moving down the line of more inquiry into into things spiritual as opposed to things scientific. And so I guess in a nutshell, that kind of prompted me to do deeper study in theology. And that led me to, to kind of, to basically walk away from science from the laboratory perspective and kind of focus more in on things theological. So I started to study the Bible more. I started to connect with groups, religious groups more, you know, become, became more involved in my spiritual edification as opposed to scientific edification. And that was a, that was a, that was the biggest shift that took place in my life. I mean, there are personal things that changed, but in terms of the, my mindset and how I was thinking about things, you know, by the time I got to the end of my postdoc, um, that would have been in like 2007, eight. You know, I was kind of, I was pretty much, pretty much focused on trying to figure out why things happened as opposed to how. Do you think that coming to faith in that way through this background of science gave it a different lens or how did that inform your experience of going to seminary? So one, one, one of the, the most insightful things that I learned when I got to seminary is that as I kind of dive more into the, the academic side of things, you know, the research side of things, not just doing the courses and getting out, but really starting to study because I had I'd been encouraged that maybe I should go on and do a doctorate in theology and this kind of, kind of stuff. So I was kind of really involved in the research aspect of things. And the more I studied, the more I realized that there was a parallel track between the sciences and theology. You know, the sciences uses the word 
hypothesis in theology and in the, in the philosophical world, they use the, the word thesis or thesis statement. So in sciences, we have a hypothesis. In, in the philosophical sciences, I guess, if you will, that they use the word thesis. I mean, the, the, big, the big, huge difference between them is that in the hypothesis language, you're using a hypothesis, you need to be able to prove something false numerically. In theology or in philosophy, you don't really have to prove it to be false per se. I mean, you can argue anything anyway. It's just the construct of the, of the research project. It's just how it flows in terms of how you build your argument. And the argument, as I said, it can go this way or it can go that way. Whereas with science, the hypothesis, you either hit it or you don't. If you don't hit it numerically, you need to have another hypothesis. And you need to be able to meet that hypothesis using the numbers, using data. Theology is not the same way, it's argument. So the problem I had with writing was that very early on, writing theological papers as opposed to scientific papers is that I was very, I was non-emotional in my writing. In other words, I was just very clinical, very fact-based, fact-driven, whereas in, in, which is, fine for the sciences, you don't need emotion in that. But in the theological sciences, you need opinion, you need feeling, you need the experiences, you need to draw on the lived experience or the, you know, the, the yeah, the lived experience in order to build your argument. And that wasn't my strength. I had to learn that all over again. So that was a huge, huge difference between my understanding and my learning in the sciences as opposed to in seminary. I'm really fascinated when I read that that was your prior career path because you don't meet a lot of people that were scientists and now they're pastors. <laughs> That's a fact. And certainly I haven't met any people of color who are scientists uh, or were scientists and are now you know, pastors or theologians. I, 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 I haven't met maybe maybe a handful mm -hmm. my career yeah yeah i haven't met any um, <laughs> except for you there is something i and i wrote it down that mustafa said during the call and he said whether it's the bible quran torah etc no matter which book it is they're all leading us in the right path and mm -hmm. i wanted to know how you think we can approach faith and spirituality from a place of unity with each other rather than opposing different theologies and ideologies? So I think fundamentally to answer that question means that the basic tenets of respect for humanity, respect for life mm -hmm. is a first step because all these traditions that seek to identify a connection between the lived experience and a deity let's put it that way and you know god or some some deity strive to do that out of through respect of that deity and through respect so the argument is you could say you know buddha 
there's a connection between Buddha and the earth, Buddha and humanity. And in turn, there's a connection between humanity and Buddha, humanity and the earth. If you look at the Quran, it's the same relationship between Muhammad and humanity, Muhammad and the earth. When you look at Christianity, it's the same relationship between, well, God and humanity, God and earth, using Jesus Christ in this case. So in all of these traditions, the Abrahamic traditions and the non-Abrahamic tradition, there is some sanctity that's related to life and valuing of life through the lens of the deity. Once you have that framework in mind, then if you follow those tenets, it's very difficult then to dismiss another because whatever deity it is that you are identifying with is reflected in humanity in its broadest sense. So that's the, the word is ubiquitous. I was going to use ubiquitous, but the, the idea of just the holistic nature of our response to God or to a deity is that that deity takes care of us and we take care of ourselves through our worship, through our veneration of that deity. But in order for that to happen, you have to have respect for the other. So that's a foundational principle. It doesn't work like that in reality, though, because people have biases, people have, you know, prejudices, people have, you know, differences. And these differences in behavior and culture and ethnicity and religiosity and all of these things weigh into how we interact with each other. So somebody will say, no, I'm not, I cannot be supportive of Jews, or I cannot be supportive of Christians, or I cannot be supportive of, of a Muslim or somebody who worships Buddha or Buddhist. You can't do it because you're not seeing them through the lens, the kind of more ubiquitous experience of God in breaking in humanity, not in groups of individuals. You get that's a principle that I think is, is problematic for most of us. Yeah, and I feel sometimes it's seen as more of almost a personal attack or threat when it's not really. But there is like a, sometimes a fear that I feel between people of different faith groups to interact with each other because it feels if you believe something fundamentally different from me, then it's an attack on my belief when in reality it doesn't have anything to do with you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the bigger challenge here is that the, the best example I can give is that, you know, growing up, I was exposed to Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. And the Pentecostal faith, it's a good faith tradition in Christianity. However, it depends on believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So you get this personalized relationship with, with Jesus, and that moves to an understanding of God. Mm -hmm. 
if you remove that relationship with Jesus, then you've lost this aspect of the Pentecostal faith. I mean, that goes through right throughout each uh, denomination, but it also goes through each religion. If you take away the fundamental tenets of the Quran and start mixing and matching them with something else, you lose not only the religion, but you also lose your identity. And when you lose your identity, you lose confidence. When you lose confidence, you lose ethnicity. You lose what makes you different, what makes you an individual. I think fundamentally, it's important to recognize that what religion does for people is gives them a place in the world. Gives, gives you a, a pivot point, an identity in the world. And you can't, if you start tearing that down using spirituality in its broad, broadest sense, you lose identity. And that, more than anything else, I believe, is what people are afraid of. People don't want to lose their identity. They want to remain, you know, I'm, I'm Pentecostal or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Buddhist or I'm a you know, I'm Jewish or I'm, you know, a Muslim or I'm a Sufi or I'm a, you know, you name it. So this universal universality of an all-encompassing spirituality, it's not an easy pathway because it's wrapped up in ethnicity and culture and identity. And so, you know, you can't just tease them, you, you know, you can't just kind of, I guess the best way to say it is mush them together and make a universal faith. It doesn't work so seamlessly. Yeah, and that's how we form communities too, is based on those things, which is really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an important, yeah, that's an important observation to me. Because, yeah, I mean, each church community or each, yeah, each spiritual community forms itself around specific things and that gives it identity and then that builds a coherent way of interacting with the rest of the world through the lens of that the moral and the ethics and the ethnic orientation of that particular community that's uh, fundamental i think i agree (laughs) (laughs) i i love how the diversity of the different people in our group that we meet with is really interesting to me. And I love, especially now how we're doing the different readings or ceremonies from different people. Yeah. Great to learn about. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so like my wife, for example, she is more spiritual than religious. So she's kind of in the same boat. I think that you're, you kind of articulate, Mm -hmm. you know, well, I'm, I come from, I'm Christian too, but. Okay, okay. I mean, she's Christian too, mm-hmm. but she, she's Lutheran and she, okay. but, but she still has this very strong acceptance of spirituality as a framing for, for who she is and how she interacts with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So she's extremely sensitive towards others, other people's traditions. Mm-hmm very respectful of other people's traditions and that's that in order to be lutheran or presbyterian or catholic or whatever 
you don't have to lose that identity to have respect for another. Mm-hmm. That's the point. But but when you get zealots or dogmatists or people who are very focused on, you know, this is the only way, then you lose empathy, you lose care, you lose compassion, you lose love for other people. And that's that's a challenge that we all are faced with, I think. And, you know, we go through that daily. It's really hard. It's almost like a, approaching, interacting with people that are different, not as like an argument or a debate, but a conversation where you're listening. Yeah. I mean, that would be, I mean, if we could do that, then we wouldn't have things like ethnic cleansing, for example, and we wouldn't mm-hmm. have white supremacists. The problem it's not, there's nothing wrong with being, in my mind, I mean, if you're a white supremacist, you know, that's, you, that's your belief. The problem when you comes about when that thought or that ideology becomes superior to somebody else, it becomes a problem because you believe that everybody else is lesser than. Mm-hmm. And you as a result of that, things are put in place to ensure that there is lesser than, you know. I mean, Hitler is probably the best example of that kind of ethnic cleansing and this Aryan race and what that meant to him and why he was willing to get rid of other people, you know, the Jewish he was trying to annihilate the Jewish race. It was it was great for him. that was that was a foundational kind of ideology that he had. I mean, it's the same thing when you look at issues of slavery in a different kind of way, but the Christian faith marginalized everybody that wasn't, that didn't look like them. And therefore you ended up with this idea that everybody else is property. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so that's when you have that's where it falls down where tolerance becomes intolerance rooted in theology rooted in a belief system then you're in trouble yeah yeah it becomes that you've lost it at that point if the fundamental thing is that all human lives are equal once you put a hierarchical structure on that then that's kind of taking away the definition (laughs) Exactly. The U.S. Constitution says, says that very thing that all, all, well, it starts off by saying all men are created equal. Well, that's a problem in and of itself because what happened to women? Mm-hmm. Right? So you start to separate and alienate and dis- make distinctions based on lines of gender. But built into that very same statement is lines of who really is a man you know, that is a white person, not a person of color. Mm-hmm. So you get the ethnicity and the race and the gender issues already compromised in that very one statement. That's why they had to amend it in some kind of way to make it more holistic. It's really hard too with theology. This is something I've been thinking about a lot and reading about a lot recently deconstructing the 
Greek and Roman law of the time from mm -hmm. what the message is, because so many things I think in theology, and it's, I mean, it's really hard. I'm, I'm not a theologian and I haven't studied it as very much, but it's so hard to think about the context of what was happening then and what was before and then where we are now and what it really means in relation to our current society, because you could take so much from mm -hmm. the Bible or from any religious text and if you're not look, if you're looking at it from, I mean, you could look at it from so many different lenses, but it could mean so many different things and kind of what a person of color or a person or a woman's role is. You've, you've hit the nail on the head. So for example, if you different denominations, when they, when the pastors preach, they don't talk about the his, historicity. They don't talk about the context on which these scriptures or these writings were, were written. So the Jewish tradition tends to hold very closely to their ancient history, mm -hmm. our histories. The Christian tradition, and large, doesn't do that. Because if you start teasing out what happened in first century, why is it that Mark wrote in a specific way? Why does Matthew wrote in a specific way? What, or Luke or John or whatever. You can't interpret, or as we say in theology, exegete the text without understanding the historical context. Because if you don't understand the historical context of the Good Samaritan, why it is that that parable has value? If you don't understand that historical context, how can you compare it to 21st century America? Mm -hmm. you can only compare apples with apples not apples with pears and bananas and, and apricots you have mm -hmm. to find a way to make the comparison as close to synonymous as possible they, they have to be similar and the only way you can figure that out is by understanding the context in which the texts were written and that's a study of history. And that, by and large, is what people don't do when they, they teach or when they uh, preach. I mean, it's, you know, in some different seminaries handle things differently. The seminary I went to, I mean, we, they drilled into us that there are three worlds that we have to look at when we read a text. The world behind the text, that's a history. The world in the text which is the biblical history, which sometimes has nothing to do with chronology. And then the world in front of the text, that's where we are and what we see. So if you don't use those three layers to interrogate a text, then you're more likely going to get skewed. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a bias. And that's, that happens often in, in different... Um, in different traditions. That's so, something that I talked to your friend Cesar about that I've uh, remembered since I interviewed him because it's a good thing to remember. Yeah, well, Cesar and I, we kind of, I mean, we kind of, we're schooled in very similar ways in terms of theology, for sure. I mean, you know, we are, we're taught to understand the text at these three levels. Without that, Without that, you, can, you, you, you disrupt the, the teaching and you disrupt the value 
of what is being communicated. It's, it's invariable. I mean, you, you just can't do it that way. But people do. People, people do, and that's how you end up, I think, with people who believe that, you know, what is written in scripture holds absolutely. A bishop can only be someone who's had one, one wife. Yeah, but in that context, it wasn't, a bishop could have one wife, but could have 15 concubines. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, that changes things a lot. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Does, right? So you can sleep with anybody, but you only have one wife. So what, what really historically, what's that framework that we're dealing with? You can't have more than one wife, but you can have several concubines. So what's the principle here? What, what are we working with? So you can't just take it out of context and say, well, this is what a bishop should be. This is what, why, why women can't be bishops. You know, you understand what I'm saying? This mm -hmm. is a misalignment of, in my mind, of how things should be understood, understood in a more holistic way. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mm -hmm. want to talk to you some too about the panel, the discussion, and sure. about environmental justice and climate justice. And I guess we can start with how you became involved in it. And no. I also want to talk about the issues too. Coming into moving to the United States, I was very clear on the issue of environment and the problems within the environment in terms of contaminants, whether it be heavy metals in the soil or antibiotics in the milk. I understood that this was a problem. This is, this is a concern. Okay. So I come to United States and then end up in seminary. And what seminary exposed to me is the connection between those chemistries and the biology and the human, the human suffering that went along with it. It also pointed to the systemic issues that undergirded what we're seeing as defined now as something like environmental racism, where individuals, pockets of communities, communities of color are housed or are, live in areas where the environment is contaminated. They live beside petrochemical plants or they live beside dumps or they live beside, you know, some fossil fuel producing manufacturing refinery or something like this, or they're close to fracking, whatever, you know? So what I got exposed to was the social justice aspects of why that was wrong. So I had an orientation scientifically of why it was wrong, but I didn't have an understanding of the social justice components and the activism that, flows around it and why it flows around it that way. A really powerful speaker that gave me a lot of clarity for this, the connective connections there was uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber III or II. He drew on the civil rights struggle and the history of the civil rights struggle 
and mapped it, overlaid it against the issues of environmental injustice. And that put the pieces together for me. I mean, that he was one. There's the other person was uh, Robert Bullard, and the third person was actually Catherine Coleman Flowers. These these people, all people of color, gave me a context on which to build the scientific knowledge that I had. Mm -hmm. I could put it in a framework, and so. Yeah, you were seeing it. You were seeing something visually on this map. Yeah, I, I got to meet, let's put it that way. I got to meet the humanness in, in the problems that I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. All along, I was just measuring stuff. So I could measure, I could tell you how many parts per million of, of an antibiotic was in, was in milk. And I knew that this was wrong but I'm not looking at it from the perspective of the human suffering that's associated with it. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it from the, the numbers. So when I started to see the numbers in its humanity, in its humanness, through the struggles and the, and the loss, loss of life and the, 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 the oppression of people, that painted another picture for me that made the whole thing become a whole and helped me to focus more on why it is that I'm, I, I, I think about environmental justice, environmental racism, climate justice, in the way I do. That's really interesting that you talked about the thing of the mapping, the overlaying, because something really similar happened to me when I was in college. I, well, I grew up in the inner city as a kid in a mostly black community. And when I was in college, I joined this research project where the professor was taking, he was a sociology and geography professor, but he was taking redlining maps from the 20s and 30s. And then he was overlying them with US census data from like current data. And mm -hmm. so you could see on these maps that the demographics of the neighborhoods hadn't changed at all. But then the other part that he took and like the human part that we were adding to this project was we would go in these neighborhoods and a lot of these people were my friends and my neighbors from my childhood, but we would interview people about their lived experiences and it added like a whole new, just as you're talking about that human yep. suffering yep. component, it added yep. this whole different layer to the whole story than just looking at a map like you could look at this map and you could see it you could see the evidence but then you could also see this photo of this person and hear about their experience it was so powerful i think you know i mean it's so interesting i'm learning a little bit more about you as we kind of go along because one of the things that happened to me as i kind of went through my journey i i you know i i hit on a very very tough time in my life during you know a few years back uh, maybe eight years nine years ago mm -hmm. and ended up living in Brooklyn in a, a Caribbean uh, Caribbean American community a very poor humble people and that helped me see the challenges of poverty 
And that gave me a different perspective, a different understanding and orientation of what community is. When you, when you live in a community for a little bit, you get to see and experience different things. When you are able to then overlay that with, like for example, you're talking about the maps and the mapping. When you are, get, you are able to see, make those connections, that changes the way you see the world. And I think that that's what happened to you, and that's what happened to me. My world was changed, and you know, I I became my my strength is the gift God has given me a gift in academia, and so and particularly the sciences, and so I used that gift as a lens for advocacy for scientific or academic or educational empowerment for these very specific areas of um, oppression. So environmental racism, environmental justice, climate justice, these are all functionally related not only to civil rights issues, but also to scientific issues and also to education issues and also to our civil civil responsibility issues and also to our social contract issues and so it's tied up in in a very very human experience it's tied up in our religiosity it's tied up in it's no one thing you can't separate the science from the lived experience or separate the theology from the science you they're all intertwined and therefore but you can't see that easily unless you do what you did. You go and experience thing in, in a, a certain space, and then you do the mapping. Once you start seeing the maps, I mean, your life has to change. You either are going to reject it as being a fallacy, or you're going to see the truth in it and act differently. And I think that's kind of where I, I've landed with my own work. Yeah, you can't you can't look at someone who's telling you something about their lives and tell them they're lying. That's correct. Yeah. But you live there for a year. If you live there in that environment for a year, mm -hmm. you then all of a sudden have a different perspective of what they're experiencing. Yeah. And then you can speak to that truth or you can hear that truth without being bristled i mean somebody will say to me for example you know you know you have you know people of color systemic racism doesn't exist i mean you've heard us these arguments in you know in the news media and people saying all this kind of stuff and you know you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps the problem is what happens when you don't have any straps yeah exactly right mm -hmm. when you don't you can't pull yourself by any bootstrap because the strap isn't there. The strap That's a great way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't, there is no strap. So you can't pull yourself up by any strap. There's no mechanism. The straps are the mechanisms that are built into society and into, into, into the, the economic system that we live in. If you, if you can't get a mortgage, you can't own a home unless you have oodles of cash where you can buy it. And people who don't have oodles of cash, which a lot of people, don't have, need, rely on a mortgage. 
well, this gives us the issue of why redlining becomes so important. Um, because redlining, when you zone places, you know, certain places can have mortgages, certain places can't have mortgages. And when you overlay that with race, then it becomes even more glaring that the places that can't have mortgage where there is no ownership are places that are predominantly populations of, of people of color, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm, yeah. I, I haven't even, that's, I'm only dealing with one side of this, this issue. I haven't even talked, began to talk about indigenous people, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother level of atrocity that, that dates, dates back to the founding of this country. You know, so um, what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't have, I don't know a lot about that either. I actually saw, I, I wanted to watch it. I'll probably watch it at some point this week, but there's a documentary on Netflix about environmental racism from an indigenous perspective. And it's, it takes, I guess it takes place pretty close to where you are. It's in Canada. Okay, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I that haven't was- watched it yet, but it looks good that makes a whole bunch of sense. I mean, the Canadians more than anybody else in North America, at least, um, the Canadians are far more sensitive to the plight of the indigenous people. I mean, they, they have actively went out to make changes in their, in their legal, legal structure and then their, their laws to address the imbalances. How does someone that would be listening to this, just on an individual level, what are steps that someone could take to either educate themselves or to move towards positive action? Because it sound, it's a hard thing to approach. The first thing that I believe, I, I mean, so we can talk about this on, on two levels. You know, We can talk about this from the perspective of a person of color, and we can talk about it from the pers- of, of, of a white person uh-huh. perspective perspective for a person of color to engage this discussion the the most important thing i believe is to understand the pond that they're swimming in understand how and why the people who are develop these systems systems of oppression if you will how it is that they came to do that i mean when we're listening to um to Joe, yes, on Saturday, Joe outlined the relationship between the theology, Catholicism, and capitalism. He gave us a very quick synopsis of that history and how it's inextricably linked together. So for people of color, this is fundamental. You have to understand this. You have to understand this relationship, particularly as the as it relates to religion and theology, because it's tied together. Theology shaped the economic system. It's the underlying, it's underlying principles of the Catholic faith that shaped the way people understood systems of governance. Okay, so that's that's fundamental to people of color. You got to understand that piece. For people who are white, 
what they have got to understand is that those systems favor them. You can't say that systemic racism doesn't exist without understanding what systemic racism is. So those are, on both sides of the fence, these are kind of baseline things that we need to, to understand. It's almost like saying, you know, if you're a drug, drug addict, the first thing that you have to do is admit that you have a problem. And if once you admit that you have a problem, then a therapeutic an intervention can take place. But if you don't fundamentally understand and believe that, you can't change anything. So my recommendation, my suggestion would be for each group or each race or each individual to engage and understand the historical perspectives, to study, to read, to, to just find out about how systems of oppression came into being. Kendi's, I don't know if you've read this book about anti-racism by um, Abrami Kendi. Okay, this, I have it. Right. So he kind of does a kind of summary of this and helps us understand issues of race. He, he, he does go off in a direction that, I don't know, if I necessarily agree with, but I think fundamentally what he's trying to do is give us an overall sense of the deeper problem that racism is. Mm -hmm. Another very, very good book is a guy, his name is Cameron Carter, who wrote a book. The book is called Race, a Theological Account. He looks at the kind of the, through a Christian lens. So he looks at scriptural references and then overlays that with issues of liberation theology. Joe talked about that. Yes. Issues, the, the neoliberal construct, Protestant theology. So he, he folds all of that in, but also takes it a step further by interrogating the first, second, and third century evolution of, of Christianity. The point I'm making here is that for no anybody who wants to engage in this activism, it's this type of work, fundamental is to understand how it came into being. Without that knowledge, you're really, you can be passionate, but you can't really transform because it won't transform your mind until you see those histories and read and understand those histories and who the players were and, or who some of the players were or are and how all of it ties together in, in the advocacy that you want to, to start working on. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a great note. That's, I'm gonna look up those books that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. These are fundamental things. There's a book on, called Medical Apartheid. Yeah, okay, so here it is. It's a book called, it's called Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. And this book describes, it, it traces the historic 
historical events that made it more difficult for people of color to enter into medicine. And why that becomes important, because medicine is a field that is based in the sciences. And if you move people away from understanding the sciences, then they won't understand their bodies. They won't understand health, the health aspects of things. In a, from a scientific lens, okay, mm-hmm. this history traces what the biases are, biases are in the medical and scientific profession. People of color need to understand that. Particularly, they have got to understand why it is that we are not in the scientific academy, generally speaking. That's a systemic issue as well. And if you understand that, then the leap to understand issues of climate change and why it is we have to advocate for climate change. Because climate change is not only is it an economic or a civil issue, It's also an issue of science and how science is executed. Science in the form of production and extractive technologies and so on. Once you get that, then it's easy to work backwards to build up an advocacy platform that has has more teeth to it. That's the point I'm trying to make here. That without the history, you can't go forward. Or you, you can go forward, but it's, I think it's- It's a part of what is right now, so it's important yeah. to understand. It's a, it strengthens your position in the advocacy that you want to take hold of. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> thank you. This is great. I learned so much. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that we, you're, you're very fortunate to be able to pull on, to do this work that you're doing and to be able to to kind of synthesize a lot of it for us, but not only for us, for you. Yeah, no, I feel that way so much. Yeah, it's going to strengthen you in your work going forward in ways that you won't even begin to understand. You're talking to people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm really, really happy that you're embarking on this path. Me too. I'm excited to see what, as we spoke, I think we're finally coming to a place where we're going to do more in terms of action with the group. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Great job. Great job. Well, thank you. Also both Devin, Drew's daughter and I, we both lived in Glasgow at different times, but we both studied there. What were you doing there? We, well, we had a study abroad program from our school that just started. I think Devin was the first group to go. And I think I was the second. But we would go, I studied business, entrepreneurship, marketing, and she was studying biology. But we went to the University of Glasgow for a semester. This is amazing. Yeah. I cannot even begin to understand how God works. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a very small world. And so when you said that, I was like, that's the only foreign country I've lived in. And so, coincidence. Can you imagine? Oh my goodness. That is awesome. That's Yeah. (laughs) Who knew? <laughs> I know. It's so weird. All right. Well, you tell me what you need next. And I'm, you know, I'm happy. If you want to interrogate some more of this stuff, I'm happy to do that. Um, Thank you. 
and we can go from there. Wonderful. Thank you, Gregory. I appreciate it. You are welcome. Have a wonderful, wonderful day, okay? You too. Bye. Bye.